Hey everyone, this is one of the Patricks who works here on Purity for Life. I know it's confusing, there's actually two of us. Nate's unfortunately out sick this week, or at least he's claiming to be. I'm pretty sure he's just at home cuddling with his cat. Either way, we can't start our new series for you, but we hope to get that going next week. Today, we have another episode from our Church Addicted series, and we hope it's a real blessing for you. Well, certainly in certain circles, academic achievement is given so much credibility that, you know, if you have a PhD or you have a, a doctor before your name, that that somehow is supposed to establish your credibility as a spiritual leader. But just because you have academic accomplishments doesn't mean the slightest thing in regards to your life in God. Nearly every listener to this episode could name half a dozen high-profile ministers of evangelical churches or ministries who have fallen because of sexual sin. And you may know of some local pastors in your area as well. How does this happen to men who are in positions of leadership in the church? In this final installment on our series, The Church Addicted, we'll look at the role of the leader and ask, what happens when a leader is compromised by sexual sin? I'm your host, Nate Dancer. This is Purity for Life. Life Ministries, we've been ministering to Christian men in sexual sin for over 30 years. Tragically, a large percentage of the men in our programs are men in full-time ministry. Here's biblical counselor Jim Lewis to talk about what happens when a pastor is compromised by sexual sin. What happens when a pastor is compromised by sexual sin? First, we need to say that this is a serious problem. There are pastors, ministry leaders, evangelists, and missionaries across this country and around the world who are in sexual sin, and the numbers are staggering. Ministry leaders are especially susceptible to sexual sin for several reasons. First, all men are made of flesh and have a sinful flesh nature. The flesh always tempts men toward sexual sin because the flesh wants to ruin every man, and sexual sin is easy. Second, ministry leaders are susceptible to pride, and pride sets a man up for failure. Spiritual leaders are easy prey to spiritual pride. Followers lavish them with praise. People tell them how wonderful they are and how blessed they are by God because of them. And after a while, the men begin to believe them. Men forget what wretches they are and how desperately they need a Savior. Third, once a man gives in to sexual sin, the shame and the seeming need to protect his reputation keeps him in the dark. He does not admit the problem, does not walk in the light. In his mind, no one can ever know there is a problem. Finally, because he is a ministry leader, the devil has a target painted on his back. The devil knows that when you strike the shepherd, 
the sheep are scattered. And if he can cause a leader to fall, he does substantial damage to the church or ministry. The minister is often ruined for life. The weak and immature in his congregation are often shipwrecked in their faith, and many do not recover. What happens when a ministry leader is compromised? Well, first, let me walk you through what a best-case scenario would look like. Let's say that a man in a position of ministry leadership makes a mistake. He's doing a Google search one day. He sees some images that he wasn't particularly looking for, and in a moment of weakness, follows a link into a pornographic website. On that site, he sees more images and even watches a video. But after a few moments of watching pornography, he says to himself, what am I doing? And he clicks away and gets off his computer. What he does next is absolutely crucial. Again, he has sinned, but this is the best case scenario. At least six things will happen or need to happen next. One, he is convicted of his sin. He is still sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, and so when the Spirit, who arrested his behavior at the computer, shows him his lust and his willingness to give in to the flesh, he's convicted of his sin before God. He listens to the voice of the Spirit. He admits and owns his sin. He confesses it to God, and he cries out to God in true godly sorrow. Two, he repents to God. You say, now wait, you just covered that in number one. He confessed his sin to God. But confession and repentance are not the same thing. Confession is to own your sin, agree with God that it is sin, and say it out loud. That's confession. Repentance is to change your mind about your sin and then turn from it and turn to God. Repentance is to change your behavior. If the behavior doesn't change, then repentance hasn't happened yet. Three, he confesses to other Christians. One major fruit of real repentance that will not only lead immediately to healing, but also keep this from happening again, is to tell other people. James said that we are to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another so that we may be healed. So this is very important. If the minister is married, he needs to confess his sin to his wife and seek her commitment to pray for his moral purity. Four, he puts fences in place. Since he was able to access pornography, he didn't have filtering software on his computer. There should not be any computer in any ministry that does not have a good filtering software protecting viewers from porn sites and other harmful material. This is a must. Five, he seeks accountability. Now, the ministry leader has confessed his sin to others, including his wife, but he needs to have men in his life who know that this is now an area of weakness for him, who will get in his face and ask him hard questions for his own good. A mature believer who wants to walk in holiness before God welcomes this. 
and 6, he is restored. After a time of obedience and faithfulness, after a time of seeking God for strength and help and temptation, the leader is reasonably sure that with God's help, he will not likely fall again. Now, I'm being careful in stating this because of the scripture that says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Overconfidence leads to pride and pride to destruction. But by faith, one can know that God will turn an area of weakness into an area of strength. If he follows the right path, he will be restored. What happens when a ministry leader is compromised? Now, with some sadness, let me walk you through what a worst-case scenario would look like. Let's say that a man in a position of ministry leadership makes a mistake. He's doing a search one day, sees some images, and in his moment of weakness, visits a pornographic website. On that site, he sees images and watches videos. He checks the hallway to make sure no one's going to walk in on him. After he's done, he erases his search history and covers his tracks. He's making provision for the flesh to give in to its lusts. Again, what he does next is absolutely crucial. He has sinned. How is he going to handle it? This is the worst-case scenario. He's convicted of his sin. From time to time, he experiences remorse over his behavior, knowing that it's sinful. He confesses his sin to God and asks for forgiveness but he returns to his sin because he keeps it a secret and confesses to no one else. And so he resists the conviction and returns again and again. The longer he stays in his sin, the more he wants it. His conscience becomes seared and his heart hardens. From time to time, he confesses to God and asks for forgiveness, but there's no real brokenness that leads to repentance because he wants his sin. He has lost all real communion with God, no longer hearing from God. He relies on his intellect and talent rather than insight and revelation from God. His increasing pride makes him more selfish and self-centered. And his constant undercurrent of guilt makes him distant and angry. He's living a lie and so lying becomes part of his pattern of covering his sin. After a while in this state of moving ever farther away from God, he is able to justify any number of sins, and so is losing all moral perspective. He's relying on old sermons that he wrote, or getting all his new material off the internet. He justifies this by telling himself that he's too busy to write sermons from scratch, his congregation is getting good material, not knowing that it's borrowed. Meanwhile, the truth of the word is not getting through to him. He gets progressively deeper and more perverse in his cravings. And so eventually, some form of acting out is attempted. If he isn't caught right away, he seeks to do it again. And he acts out his sinful behavior He's now living his fantasy. His use of pornography may increase, feeding his desire to act out even more, or it may even decrease because he's no longer needing the pornography. His acting out has replaced it, but he's totally lost. Now. 
This is what happens when a leader gets compromised by sexual sin. I know. That leader was once me. I lived the worst-case scenario. From the earliest days of the church, there has been a problem with false teachers, deceivers, and compromised leaders. When Paul said goodbye to the Ephesian church, he warned the elders that after he left, wolves would come in from among them, not sparing the flock, and that from their midst men would arise, speaking perverse things in order to draw the disciples away from them. In this interview from our archives, Steve Gallagher and Mike Johnston explore this especially relevant topic. Steve Gallagher has joined me in the studio. Steve is the founder of Pure Life Ministries. Steve, as always, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here with you, Mike. As we continue our discussion, Steve, in your book, Intoxicated with Babylon, you make the point that a worldly-minded church will embrace worldly concepts that inevitably pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you talk about this happening, you have laid the blame for this squarely at the top. There's a culture in Christianity that just makes it possible for people to rise to the top who are good at working the system that we have in place here. But, you know, Mike, this is nothing new. Paul faced it. All the first century Christian leaders faced it. You know, when Paul was giving his final address to the Ephesian leaders, he told them that after he left, there would be savage wolves in their midst, not sparing the flock, but wanting to accumulate to themselves followers. And elsewhere, he talked about angels of light who are really serving Satan. And of course, Jesus alerted us to be wary of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So all through the New Testament, we're warned to be aware of the fact that there's going to be false teachers who are going to try to capitalize on the Christian situation for their own selfish purposes. Steve, you talk about deceivers in the body of Christ. In your book, you talk about two types of deceivers that are at work in the body today. Yeah, there's those who are just outright deceivers, you know, television preachers begging for seed faith offerings or men who prey on vulnerable women, you know, entertainers that are tapping into the lucrative gospel music industry. You know, there are people out there that are capitalizing on the system to further their own aims. But not so obvious are the teachers who are inadvertently leading people astray. You know, they've been taught wrong doctrine, and they are simply passing along what's been given to them. You know, and that's what makes the deception so powerful is because they're sincere, and they're simply telling others what they've been taught. So when we're talking about false teachers, when the average Christian is looking for a false teacher, they may not be as obvious. They may not be the wolf that so oftentimes we're looking for. Well, that's the problem. People are looking for wolves instead of sheep. You know, they're looking for servants of Satan instead of angels of light. In other words, a deceiver doesn't look like a wolf. A deceiver doesn't look like a servant of Satan. That's what's really the challenge, is that the people who are out there deceiving are so often very smooth in what they're doing. And when you talk about a church, especially the church in America today, that doesn't have a solid foundation to begin with, they're in real trouble. 
when Christians are wrapped up in the spirit of the world, mm. their discernment is just going to be practically non-existent. So it's very easy for a worldly-minded church to be led astray by false teachers. Mm. You, in your book, Steve, you've laid out really four reasons that this kind of deception can occur. False teaching is one of the inevitable side effects, you said, of number one, ambition within the Christian church, or blind ambition. What we have here, Mike, is a morphing of two distinct cultures. We have the Christian culture, which follows the teachings of Christ, obviously, and things like what Paul said, do nothing from selfishness, but with humility of mind, uh, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Or Jesus, you know, saying to his disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. You know, that is a kingdom mindset. But we also have fused into this kingdom culture is the American culture, which is exactly the opposite. The American culture all revolves around success, striving ahead, being the first. It's all about putting self forward. So you have a clash of two cultures, or it's not really a clash, unfortunately. We have the American culture because of the worldliness in the church, which has kind of overtaken what should be the culture of the kingdom of God. You said earlier that this was not new in the church, and of course, even with Jesus, we found the disciples arguing about who was going to be first, already looking to make their way up the ladder of the church, even at that time. Well, in those early days, you know, they just didn't understand things very well, and it wasn't till after Calvary that they began to understand that it wasn't going to be like they thought it was going to be, where that worldly mentality of trying to be first, Calvary destroyed that mentality. That kind of leads us into your second point about worldly-minded teachers, Steve. You said that the substitution of education for anointing is another cause of this problem. Well, certainly in certain circles, academic achievement is given so much credibility that, you know, if you have a PhD or you have a, a doctor before your name, that that somehow is supposed to establish your credibility as a spiritual leader. But just because you have academic accomplishments doesn't mean the slightest thing in regards to your life in God. It reminds me of something that John Wesley said, I don't care about your seminary degrees, just give me a hundred men who are hungry for God and fear nothing but sin, and I'll turn this country upside down. And, you know, he understood that a man's life in God was the most important thing. And education can be a good thing, but it certainly should be secondary to a person's life in God. Mm. Steve, the third cause that you bring up here really stems from that, and that is uh, men of God that are going to the pulpit that are not prepared to be teaching and preaching, and so they're just making assertions about things they really don't know anything about. Well, what those kind of teachers are depending on maybe not their academic achievements, but these teachers depend on their own personal abilities, you know, their charismatic personalities or their abilities to really uh, woo a crowd or affect people emotionally or challenge them intellectually or something. You know, in other words, it isn't their life in God, their walk with God that is giving them confidence their confidence is coming through their own personal abilities, and they use those abilities 
to create a following for themselves. In concluding your discussion on this subject, uh, you did have something to say to the men of God, the true men of God that are really preaching the Word of God and what they can expect. I need to say, Mike, that there are many godly people pastoring churches, but the reality is that in this current culture that we find ourselves in, true men of God are going to be largely ignored by people who prefer charisma to godliness and flash to spiritual substance. But, you know, God did not call us to success. He called us to faithfulness. And when we stand before him, even if we were nothing more than a pastor of a tiny church or something like that, if we were faithful to what he called us to do, then we will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And many of these big, big names that we have come to look up to so much are not going to be hearing that same thing. Richard Brocht was a pastor and ministry leader for over 20 years. He was successful and well-loved in his ministry, but he had a dark secret. For years, he had been hiding a double life of sexual sin and an obsession with women. The Lord led him to Pure Life Ministries, where at long last he found victory over his addiction and today is walking in freedom. We want you to hear his testimony and know that a life of purity in the Lord is waiting for any man, even a compromised leader, who is willing to do whatever it takes to get free. Well, I was a pastor or in ministry for 29 plus years, a little over 29 years. I remember having a lust problem when I was very young, about fifth grade actually, and that never went away completely. It was gone for a period of time, at different periods of time during, uh, during my life, but it was never, never gone. It's not something I had, I, I wanted revealed, obviously because the shame of it all and especially because of what that lust produced in my life, that ministry, doing, doing something good for God, preaching, teaching, which I absolutely loved and adored, somehow in my mind I thought that that would offset the anger of God toward these sinful behaviors in my life. I remember the scripture verses in Proverbs, I think it's in Proverbs chapter 5, where it talks about how you're, um, you find that the, the years that you've spent have gone to the cruel one. Your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien. And you find yourself in almost utter ruin in, in the midst of the assembly, right in the middle of the congregation itself. And that's where I found myself. I found myself almost at a point of complete and total destruction, about to lose everything. And how did I even get there? My wife was noticing things. She was noticing the way I would look at a woman. She was noticing a relationship that I had with a, a specific woman uh, that, that I had the affair with, but yet I was able to excuse all those away. The sin was became greater than the Spirit of God in me, and I couldn't control it any longer. I had had, um, I had, had a couple of affairs during that time of ministry, uh, two different affairs over the last the last 10 or so years of, of, of ministry time before 
it was all revealed and it just all came out. Sheila finally came to a place where she just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I want to divorce you. I'm just saying I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to live like this anymore. You've got to, you've got to get some help. Um, that's when I right then said, I'll go to Pure Life. Do you, what, do you, what do you think about me going to Pure Life? I'll go. If that's what it takes, I'll go. And I made a phone call to my superintendent on that, on that night <clears throat> and asked to meet with him as soon as possible. And that's when, the whole, that's when that whole transition happened. I went from pastoring a church, full-time ministry, to resigning everything. I got dropped off in the middle of nowhere at this little ranch on this hillside. And I felt like, I felt like I'd been abandoned, but at the same time, I knew it was the right place to be. I, it was a place I was supposed to be. I knew God had directed me there. And I was willing to endure whatever I had to endure to get my life straightened out. God would do something through a service, through a film, through a speaker, through something that would just rip my heart into. He kept breaking me and breaking me and breaking me. Times on the prayer trail, time on the ridge of the chapel. Man, I love going in the chapel and just getting on my face before God and just crying my heart out to Him. Um, that's when things just changed. Every week was more change and more release and more freedom and more liberty in the Spirit. Don't believe the lie. There's always a way out. God will make a way out. Right when you think the night can't get any darker, it will come and it'll be a joyous time. God will make a way. My name is Richard and I've been unchained. As we close today's program, I want to remind you of our journey over the last six episodes because we've been asking the question, why is the church addicted? And along the way, we've suggested several answers that have been gleaned from our many years of hard experience. We don't have any desire to offer just a diagnosis without a plan of treatment. And so it really all comes down to this. We must see who the Lord is and be willing to seek Him and cry out to Him and pursue Him until we know that we are living and walking in His will and by His power. We must be sure that we are saved because we are filled and led by the Spirit of God. We must establish and maintain godly disciplines that allow us to commune with God and hear His voice from His Word. We must seek to know the fear of God and always to obey his commands, examining our life to see if we're allowing the world's culture to infiltrate and dominate our lives and churches. And if you're a leader, you must be willing to live in the light with fierce accountability and fight to get free and stay free. Where any of us have gone astray, we simply need to repent. We need to see sin for what it is, turn from it, and return to the Lord. We need to set right what has fallen, repair the damage that has been done, and this we can do with the Lord's help. 
that's it for this episode and our series, The Church Addicted. Thanks so much for listening to Purity for Life, and we'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.